Go ahead and open up your Bibles to the book of Zephaniah. We're moving into our study of the Old Testament prophets, in particular, the book of the Twelve, or as they are better known among the modern church, the Minor Prophets. I prefer the title, the Book of the Twelve, to the Minor Prophets. One reason is because minor makes it sound like they're not important, (laughs) and they're already overlooked enough in the church because of their content and the difficulty of interpreting them. So I don't think we need to add to the obscurity of these books or the tendency to overlook them by calling them the minor prophets. There's nothing minor about the minor prophets except for the fact that their books are not particularly long, and we'll get into that as we take a look at them together. We're not going to be going through all of the minor prophets today. That would be too big of a study. Instead, we're going to introduce the whole group of the minor prophets. And you can see on your outline that the minor prophets called the Book of the Twelve focus on the day of the Lord in both its past and future aspects. So a very important book for us to be able to understand the plan of God for bringing judgment and justice and salvation to a world full of sin. Now, before we actually get into the outline, I wanted to just back up and remind ourselves of what we're doing here with this Old Testament survey. And that is is that we're introducing each book of the Old Testament to encourage the reading of the Old Testament. Christians, we come to church, we get good Bible teaching, but what we need is to also read the book that God has given to us and not just hear preaching about the book. We do need to hear the preaching, but reading is such a wonderful privilege that God has given to us that we've grown up in a time and a place where we are able to learn how to read as that has not been the case for many, many people throughout history. And that not only are we able to read, but that then God has given us his book in our own language so that we can read the words of God for ourselves. And so this morning, before we get into the Minor Prophets, I thought I would hand out a humorous article put out by the Babylon Bee. There is a little bit of humor in the Bible, not a lot. And there is a time and a place, I suppose, for irony. And so here's an ironic article about the man who doesn't read the Bible also is the chief authority on what Jesus would do today. People have lots of ideas about God, people have lots of ideas about Christ, but how many people have actually read the book about God and about Christ? And these Old Testament prophets, the book of the Twelve, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, we know them through this study as the latter prophets, Reading that book gives us great knowledge and insight into the character of God. What does his voice sound like? What types of things would he say if he were here? And in fact, he is here, and he is speaking, if you have ears to hear. So I just wanted to read a little bit of this article for fun to encourage us to be reading the Bible and not be intimidated by the statements of those who aren't even reading their Bibles about God and about Christ So local man Curtis Bivens has not opened the Bible a single time in his life and doesn't believe a word it says, but he's here to tell you that everything you believe about the Bible is all wrong. And he has the quote there. Of course, it's all made up. You know, it's just an ironic article. 
Jesus would never say or do any of that if he were here today, replied Curtis Bivens on a recent Facebook post. And the quote then continues after the next paragraph. Take it from me. I like that. Take it from me. Jesus was all about love, and he was never angry or divisive, explained Bivens while adjusting his tortoiseshell glasses. In fact, if he were here today, I'm certain he wouldn't be rebuking people. Instead, he'd celebrate them for being their true selves. So this idea that that God is never angry or divisive, that Jesus was never angry or divisive, when you get into the minor prophets and you start reading them, you find out that, of course, nothing could be further from the truth, that God is a God who has indignation, God is a God who has wrath, and that Jesus showed that same character speaking very similarly to the Old Testament prophets when he was here with us, and he still is the same today. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so I thought the last paragraph would also be an encouragement to us to not back down or be intimidated by the confidence with which some people speak about their views on God, but instead to be humble and at the same time, be firm about what the Bible actually does say. In response, many people took his side, lest they get called out and look like big dummies in the comments section. He sounds pretty confident. I guess we should just listen to this guy and take his word for it, said Jordan Hankins. I checked my Bible, but it's all the way across the room, and I'm sitting down. So that's a, you know, a humorous take on the problem uh, that exists theologically, in our culture, that the loudest voices, the most confident voices are often the most ignorant voices, and that people are too lazy to find out the truth for themselves, but instead they just allow the social pressure to keep them to be quiet and to not speak up for the truth. So let's not be that way. Let's be reading our Bible and let's be confident to speak the truth in love about who God is and who Jesus is. That's why we're doing this Old Testament survey so that we can have that confidence to know God and to take action to eliminate ignorance and to bring the light of God's truth to people's hearts and minds. All right, so with that in mind, let's have a word of prayer. Father, as we gather together in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, today, we're thankful for how you have added each one of us here to your family, called us into fellowship with yourself, called us into fellowship with one another. Thank you for revealing to us the truth about you, giving us eyes to see you and ears to hear what your words say. So, Lord God, we we ask you fervently from the heart to open our ears once again today to hear from your prophets your word so that we might understand and know you better and be able to represent you and be a light that is shining in a dark world. For our good and for your glory, amen. All right, so let's talk about the minor prophets. Uh, Don't like that title. But the authorship and the dates there you see on your outline, of course, is that there's 12 different authors and that they prophesied from 830, we're just guessing, might be the earliest book, uh, around 830 B.C. to 435 B.C. It's an educated guess, but we don't know the exact dates on when these things happened. And so the book of the Twelve is Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, 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 Habakkuk. How would he say it? He's not here to tell us. Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. I'm going to skip a couple of slides here to get to their dates. And so you see here, 
This goes back to 850 here, and that's uh, about the time of Jonah making his prophecies to Nineveh. And then it goes up here to the book of Malachi after 450, in between 450 and 430. So you've got about 400 years of history here from the 850 to the 450 of the book of the 12. And the 12 are in red, Jonah, Joel, Amos here towards the beginning, Hosea and Micah during the time of Isaiah. You've got Habakkuk, Obadiah, Zephaniah, Nahum here around the same time as Jeremiah and Ezekiel, these exilic and pre-exilic prophets right here. But then you've got some post-exilic prophets, unique among the book of the Twelve, the major three, as they're called, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, are all in this time period. But then you move forward and you get Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, which is the end of the book of the Twelve. So it follows a rough chronological order with Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, then Jonah, Micah, where's Micah? There. And then Nahum, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. So it doesn't follow a strict chronological order, as you see. And so we think that because it was put together as one book in the Old Testament, and we think that the early Hebrews, before the time of Christ even, viewed the book of the Twelve as one book, kind of like we view the, well, they viewed the Torah as one book, and we view it as five books. So we've also kind of broken these down into 12 books instead of viewing them as a whole, and that's going to be one of the issues that we talk about. Are they supposed to be taken as a whole, or are they individual books? And if they are taken as a whole, then why are they in the order that they're in? And all of that is very, very interesting discussion that's going on among Old Testament scholars and Bible teachers today. So just wanted you to see the outline. Here, of course, is the destruction of Jerusalem, and Zedekiah was the last king there, and then the temple is taken in 586, and then you've got the return after the exile. So this exile, of course, is what we've been talking about as the major background of the prophets. Those who came before were anticipating it, then we have a big group of people that are prophesying right around that time, and then you've got some even after talking about what God is going to do in the future. So I wanted you to keep the timeline in mind. Here's the kings of Israel coming to an end in 7, well, it says 740, but I usually think of 722 as the date there, and 586 is the destruction of Jerusalem. So whoever put this chart together has some different dates there from the traditional ones for whatever reason. And when it comes to the dating of the minor prophets, don't like that term, it's somewhat difficult to know. Some of the books don't tell us when they were written, and so we just kind of have to put the pieces of the puzzle together from what they're talking about and where it might fit in with the Old Testament timeline. So not all of these are set in stone, and different people will put different books in different places according to how they weigh the evidence. I want to give you the general idea, but don't think that all of this is exactly how it definitely was. All right? So when it comes to the book of the Twelve, We've talked about the authorship, we've talked about the dates, and then I wanted to also include here this slide on why study the minor prophets. It's probably the most overlooked part of the Bible, the the part of the Bible that we read the least, that we understand the least. And so the question is, well, maybe there's a reason for that, maybe we should focus on other things. What would be the purpose of studying the book of the Twelve or the minor prophets? Well, number one, obviously, 
This is in the Bible. It's inspired scripture. And so we should study it and know it because we love all of God's word and we're not going to relegate parts of God's word as being unimportant or not worth studying. And number two, they present important truths about Christ. The book of the 12 is quoted repeatedly in the New Testament as having prophecies about Jesus Christ that are fulfilled and very important things there for prophetic knowledge of Christ. And then number three, they contain lasting lessons for us, particularly about the nature of God and his dealings with mankind. The day of the Lord being the big theme here, and the day of the Lord is something that we're still anticipating and looking forward to. And so it's very important for us to be able to understand the foundation of these ideas in the prophets, including the book of the Twelve. Now, one of the reasons why the book of the Twelve is overlooked and not studied as much is because it is somewhat repetitive with the other prophets. As we go through the themes here in a little bit, you'll notice that the themes are very similar to Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And after you've read through 66 chapters of Isaiah and, uh, what is it, 48 chapters of Ezekiel and 52 chapters of Jeremiah, you kind of feel like you've gotten the point. And we really need another 67 chapters from the minor prophets on this same subject of judgment on Israel and Judah for their sin and judgment on the nations, and the restoration of Judah and Israel in the future day of the Lord, it seems like overkill. Like, okay, we get the message, we got the point. When God repeats himself, he repeats himself for a reason. Just like you as a parent will repeat yourself to your children, and your children will be like, yeah, yeah, we know, we've heard this, Dad. But you haven't done it. You, you've heard it. And you're tired of hearing it, but you haven't done it. And so I need to keep on telling it to you, hoping that at some point you will do it. And that's the way God is with his children. We're like, yeah, yeah, we've heard this. We know this. And God says, well, you haven't heard it the way you're supposed to. You haven't listened. And so I got to tell it to you again. And so God really hammers this message, these points, through the major prophets, through the minor prophets, really the latter prophets. And what you see here is that when you put together the minor prophets, you end up with 67 chapters, which is about the size of the book of Isaiah. It's bigger than Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Now, I don't know if word count, if they're equal in size or not, but just chapter-wise, you see that what you end up having is another major prophet when you put them together. The direction that a lot of scholarship and Bible teaching on the Old Testament is leaning towards is that the minor prophets shouldn't be considered as individual books. They should be considered as, as another unified whole, basically a fourth major prophet, just by 12 different authors this time. So I think that has a lot of merit, and I'm not completely sold on that idea, but it's something we're going to be discussing and talking about. So they do contain lasting lessons about who God is and how God deals with man, the type of thing that people like to debate on Facebook, right? And God would never do that. God wouldn't be that way. Well, let's talk about what God has done and what God has said he's going to do in the prophets. And then finally, they warn of sin and its consequences, particularly the sin of idolatry. And we'll see that as we go through the themes as well. So important for us to read and study and understand the Book of the Twelve or the Minor Prophets, whichever is the proper title for the book or these books, if you follow me there. All right, so then let's take a look at the themes. As we mentioned, 
the major theme, the key theme, is that of the day of the Lord. This is pretty much the purpose of the book, is to show how God is going to judge Israel, judge the nations, and restore Israel through this coming day of judgment, this coming day of the Lord. Now, on your handout, I put a scripture reference all the way back in Exodus, because when you look through the prophets, you're recognizing that these latter prophets are reiterating and they're adding to what God has revealed through Moses, the first prophet. And so many of the themes, many of the ideas that are developed in these books have their roots in the Pentateuch, the Torah. And that's why I wanted to take a look here at Exodus chapter 32, verse 34. We'll read Zephaniah next. So I told you to open to Zephaniah. Don't lose that. But I do want to check this verse here in Exodus 32, verse 34. So what's happening in Exodus chapter 32? Go all the way back in your minds to when we were early this year starting our study of the Old Testament in our second book of the Pentateuch. And in Exodus 32, God had brought his people out of Egypt to himself, out Mount Sinai, and he was entering into a covenant with them, but they broke his covenant by disobeying the Ten Commandments and building a golden calf to worship in violation of the first two Ten Commandments. And so God was angry with his people. And no matter what they say about God on Facebook, he does get angry about sin. And we see that from the very beginning. So Exodus 32, verse 34, we'll pick up the paragraph here in verse 30, where Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin. Most people today would be like, it's not a great sin to build a golden calf. People can worship God however they want. Stop being such a bigot and closed-minded. Who's got hurt? You know, did they kill anybody? Did they murder anybody? No. Don't get so upset about these little things. But no, that's not the way that God views it and not the way that Moses views it. He says, you have sinned a great sin. And now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now, go lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit... I will visit their sin upon them. So we think this is the key verse in the Pentateuch that leads to the developing doctrine of the day of the Lord, the day of God's visitation, the day when God comes to judge and visit the sin of the world upon not just the people of Israel, but all the nations. So God begins to speak here about the day when he is going to visit their sin upon them. That's the background for the day of the Lord then in the latter prophets, starting with Isaiah, going through Ezekiel and Jeremiah, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, and then into the book of the 12th. So back to Zephaniah. I want you to see here in Zephaniah chapter 1, verses 14 through 18, the... Day of the Lord theme 
which is, of course, not only here in Zephaniah, but it's in Joel, it's in Amos, it's in Obadiah, it's in Zechariah, it's in Malachi, and I gave you a bunch of verse references there, and that's not all of them. That's just a sampling of the references of the day of the Lord here in the book of the 12th. But this one I picked out as a good one to introduce it in Zephaniah 1, 14 through 18. So follow along in your Bibles. I'll read it out loud. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed for a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. So, you get the idea. This is serious. This is, this is heavy. And this is a day when God is going to visit the iniquity of the world upon it. He comes in judgment. That's the day of the Lord. That's the major emphasis, at least, of the day of the Lord. And one of the things that we're going to talk about on the problems is exactly what all is contained in the day of the Lord. That's problem number two here that we'll be discussing today. If you flip it over and take a look at that. Now, you can also look up the verses in Joel and the other ones that I gave you there. But for time's sake, we're going to continue on to Malachi. Turn from Zephaniah over to Malachi. And what you want to keep in mind as we look now at the day of the Lord in Malachi is that Malachi is a post-exilic prophet. So the judgments, the historical judgments of God on the nations, many of those have already come to pass in the destruction of Jerusalem, in how Babylon was able to conquer and destroy many kingdoms and bring them into exile, even the Assyrians being used by God to punish Samaria and so many other nations. A lot of these prophets who were earlier, a lot of what they said about the coming judgment of God, God visiting the world with their iniquity, a lot of that's already happened. And now the people of Israel have been restored. Here is the restoration after the exile. And yet Malachi, living almost 100 years after the restoration, still is speaking about the coming of the day of the Lord. So that tells us that these Old Testament prophets were not just talking about Old Testament things, ancient things, but that their prophecies have relevance for the future. And I want you to see that here in Malachi. Let's pick it up in chapter 4. Malachi 4, verses 1 through 5. And this is how the Old Testament ends then in our English Bibles. Remember, it's a different order in the Hebrew Bible. That the latter prophets come before the writings. And so Malachi would not be the end of their Old Testament, but whatever book is at the end of the writings would be the end of their Old Testament. But the way the prophets end is with Malachi chapter 4, and this is what it says. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all of the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day this coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But 
For you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So, that's also pretty intense, pretty serious. But one thing that you notice here in Malachi's description of the coming day of God's visitation, the advent of God, is that it's not just punishment and destruction for the wicked, but it's also salvation and vindication for the righteous. When we think of judgment, we rightly place the emphasis upon God's condemnation of sin. However, that's not the only thing that judgment means. If you just think about the meaning of the word judgment, it means rendering justice. It means rendering a decision, like a judge, making a judgment about whether someone is guilty or innocent and what the punishment is going to be if they're guilty. But also justice involves vindication, that when someone is shown to be not guilty, when someone is shown to be righteous, well then judgment is not a bad thing, judgment is a good thing. You take someone to court for libel, there's some important cases going on among high-powered people and companies right now about slander, about libel. And they go to court, and the judgment will be made as to whether or not someone has done wrong and whether or not someone has been wronged. And if someone has been wronged, judgment is good for them that now they're going to get paid back for what was taken from them. And that's the way it is for the righteous. In the day of the Lord, in the day of judgment, yes, the wicked are punished, but the righteous are vindicated. The righteous have been wronged by the wicked, And now the righteous are going to receive back what was done to them. And it's going to be good. That's why they're leaping like calves from the stall, like the song says. So, very important here, ideas about the future day of the Lord. That the exile of Israel, the catastrophic events for the nations surrounding the conquest of the Assyrians and the Babylonians, that could be a picture, a foretaste, a type of the ultimate day of the Lord, but that the Old Testament prophets themselves anticipated a future day of the Lord. It's not something that was just developed later in Hebrew theology, but it goes all the way back to the prophets themselves, including Isaiah, who wrote many years before Malachi, as you see on the chart. So it's important to understand the day of the Lord, both in its historic typological sense and in its ultimate future sense. And as we look at the passages on the day of the Lord, as you read through these books, as I anticipate that you will, you come across this repeated emphasis on the day of the Lord being near. You sense that here in the two passages that we've read, in Zephaniah and Malachi, that there's this impending nature. There's this sense that it's coming, it's on its way. And the New Testament picks up that same idea. So that when Jesus says, I am coming quickly, 
when he says these things are things that are going to shortly take place, he's speaking the same way the Old Testament prophets did about these things. And so God is always giving us this sense that the day of the Lord, the day of God's judgment, it can come any time. It's imminent. It's, it's going to come unexpectedly. It's going to come quickly and when people aren't looking for it. So another example is Obadiah 1.15. I'll just read it for you. The day of the Lord is near. Notice that. It's near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. That judgment by, based upon deeds is also going to be a key theme in the book of Revelation. That this day of judgment, it's coming. And God is going to pay back each one according to what they have done. Your deeds are going to be judged. And then Zephaniah 1.7 says this, Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. And that's going to be really important when we get to Revelation 19. The idea that God has this feast, this sacrifice, and he's got his guests, and that the world is going to be judged on this day of the Lord when he comes in judgment. Zephaniah 1.14 also, The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. And Hebrews 10.25, picking up that same idea in the New Testament, says that we as Christians should not neglect to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The day drawing near. This is picking up that language of the Old Testament day of the Lord. The day of God's judgment upon the world. The day of God's vindication for the righteous. This day is drawing near. We see it. We expect it. We anticipate it. That's not a bug in Christianity. That's a feature of Christianity that Christians should be expecting Christ to come back in our lifetime, in our generation, because that's the way God speaks. He speaks in such a way that if you're actually reading his book, Instead of just reading people talking about his book or listening to preachers talk about his book, you'll get that sense that Christ is coming. Christ is on his way. And any church that lacks that urgency is a church that has not been reading their Bible. Does that make sense? If you lack that sense of urgency that Christ is coming, that's an indication that you've not been reading your Bible. You've just been hearing about the Bible and people, they're distorted and twisted messages about the Bible. And you can you know, from a human perspective, understand why Christians get into that mindset. Well, every generation has thought that Christ is coming back in their time, and so we don't want to make the same mistake that all those Christians made. It wasn't a mistake. They were right to anticipate Christ coming back, and Christ has delayed longer than we thought he would, which he also predicted, and, and yet we still got to stay on the edge of our toes, uh, ready for Christ's coming. A few more New Testament passages to show you, once again, the importance of this theme of the day of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 5.5 5 says, We are to exercise church discipline, in effect, delivering someone over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. But the day of the Lord is coming. And so, it's not so important what happens to us now, but what's important is, are we ready for the day of the Lord? And so, if someone has to suffer by being church disciplined now, and that's going to help prepare them to bring them to repentance for the coming of the day of the Lord, well, then that's well worth it. And then 1 Thessalonians 5.2 says, You yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Just as Malachi says it's coming, 
Paul says it's coming. Just as there's this impending sense that it can come and people are not going to be ready like a thief in the night, that's the same way the prophets in the Old Testament talked about it. And they were writing 400 years, some of them 700 years, before Paul. And if they were saying it was near, and then Paul's saying it's near, well then you can't really make fun of us for saying it's near when we're talking about Revelation being written many centuries before our time. Well, if they could say it's near and it was hundreds of years later, then we can say that's the proper interpretation of it as well, and we still expect it to be right around the corner. Very important to get that. And then 2 Thessalonians also has the same message where it says that the day of the Lord is coming, and I like what Peter writes. He says this, The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. The judgment day is coming. Live in light of judgment day. Do what the judge says you're supposed to do. Live according to his law and be ready for judgment day. That's the whole message there of the day of the Lord. And Peter then also says in 2 Peter, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Just like Paul says it, Peter says it. And he says, the heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And that's the way the book of Revelation ends. Heaven and earth vanish away, and everyone stands before the great white throne and is judged according to their works, and everything is exposed before God's judgment. So that's a heavy, important truth, and that's the main idea here in the book of the 12, the key theme. And so therefore, when you look at problem number two and you say, when is the day of the Lord? It's not past. It's still yet future. It didn't happen in 70 A.D., now, the things that happened in the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD are a type, an example, a foretaste, if you prefer, a prefigurement of the final judgment because Jews and Jerusalem were judged in the destruction of the temple in AD 70 for rejecting Jesus Christ, rejecting God's spirit, rejecting God's promises, and they're still suffering under that judgment today. But... That's not the final day of the Lord. And we know that because the book of Revelation was written afterwards, and we know that the things that the prophets were talking about and Jesus were talking about were not fulfilled completely by those events, and there's still future judgment coming. So the day of the Lord is future, and I think it not only includes the great tribulation that Jesus and others talked about, but it also includes the millennium, and the destruction of the earth and the creation of the new heavens and the new earth because of what we read from Peter. Peter said, The day of the Lord will come in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And when does that happen? Well, that's not during the Great Tribulation. That's after the thousand years. Then you've got the new heavens and the new earth and that final judgment. And so the day of the Lord, it's actually not one day. It's a very expansive time period that covers at least 1,007 years from the beginning of the tribulation, if it starts in those seven years, and then the creation of the new heavens and the new earth and that final judgment at the great white throne. So it's not just a day, but it's a figure of speech for a time period when God comes and judges and he's present for that active judgment. Any questions about the day of the Lord and its timing? It's a complex subject. And, of course, other Bible teachers will disagree with me on a number of those points.
but we just want to follow the evidence the best we can wherever it leads. All right, so let's take a look at some of the other themes that are here in the book very briefly because, like I said, they're somewhat repetitive from what we've had in the other prophets that we've been studying. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, they all focus on the sin of Israel and Judah, focusing on idolatry, and we find that emphasis also in the book of the Twelve with Hosea focusing on idolatry, Micah, Zephaniah, Zechariah, key chapters there that really point out the idolatry of the people of Israel, just like the major prophets, so-called. And then the social injustice, the not only the idolatry towards God, but the injustice towards man that was also a key theme in the other prophets is found here with emphasis, especially in Amos. I put Amos 3 and 4, but you want to add chapter 5 there as well. Amos chapter 5 is key on social injustice. And that then brings up another problem that we can talk about right now. The problem of when the Bible condemns injustice in society, man's inhumanity to man, as it has been called in modern times, is that the same thing as the Marxism, as the social justice movement that has come into our time and our culture and has metastasized, if I can use biased language against it, to Christianity and various forms of Christianity that have taken on this social justice, as it's called, theme? And so I wanted to hand out another article on that subject that I find helpful. And gotquestions.org is very good on such things. And I continue to recommend them as a resource to you. Make sure everybody gets one on this side. So as I'm passing around that article, we're not going to read the article. We don't have time for that. I want to point out... What are the things in the Minor Prophets that are used to defend the modern theories of social justice? Because this is where a lot of liberal Christians, modernist Christians, postmodernist Christians will go. They'll go back to the Old Testament prophets and they'll say, we're just teaching what the Old Testament prophets taught. Justice in society is a key element of God's will and serving God and that we're not wrong for putting this emphasis on social justice. They'll quote passages like Amos chapter 5 where it says, let justice roll down like waters and talks about how the people are taking bribes and turning aside the needy. And turning aside the needy is what capitalism does and that we've got to tear down this oppressive system and that our whole system is built around oppression. Now, this is a, a complex subject that we can't cover in just a few minutes as a part of a message here, but actually be multiple sermons would, to cover this subject. But just to give you the bottom line, the brief answer, is that when the Old Testament prophets speak about injustice in society they're not talking about the same things, the same things that modern social justice warriors are talking about. Because what the Old Testament is talking about is when people who have power, position, money, and influence use that to unjustly gain more power, position, money, and influence, which is a real problem, and we do see a lot of that in our society, that that is evil. And that is a sign of someone whose heart is not right towards God. 
if someone takes a bribe and doesn't make a just decision, but allows social or economic considerations that are for his own benefit to cause him to speak or to promote or to make a judgment or to make a policy, well, then that is evil. That's an abuse of the power and the position that the person has been promoted to. And there's all kinds of corruption in our government. But what the social justice movement is saying is that any time you've got some group of people who have less power or have less money or who have less social influence than another group of people, that every time that's happened, it's because they've been wronged by this other group. And that if the groups would treat each other fairly, then everyone would have the same amount of money, everyone would have the same amount of political power, and we've got to level it all out. And that the job of the social justice warrior is to take money and power from those who have it and to give it to those who don't have it. And this whole idea that someone is appointed by who? By the voters, I guess to take money and power from some and to give it to others because if someone has something that you don't have or someone has more of something that you don't have, then ergo, all the time, they've taken it unjustly. Well, then this causes class war, this causes class envy, and this is legalized theft that is based upon envy of stirring up strife between a lower class and an upper class. Now, do the upper class oppress the lower class? Yes, Does every person who's in the upper class gain by oppression? No. And has God appointed government to make sure that everyone has the same amount of power and wealth? No. Is wealth supposed to be passed down from generation to generation? Are we supposed to work for it? Yes. So there's all kinds of biblical principles there that are against the Marxist view of social justice. So when you hear people talking about social justice, make sure that you understand the difference between a Marxist understanding and a biblical understanding of justice. God creates people with different abilities. God creates people with different talents. God is the one who makes rich and makes poor. The rich are supposed to look out for the poor, but it's not government's job to make sure that everyone has the same amount of money and to take from the rich and give to the poor. And every time that government has been given that responsibility and authority, they haven't actually helped the poor. They've made a dependent class that doesn't support themselves well and is dependent upon the government. And they've made themselves rich and powerful because they're the ones who are taking money and power by force. And whenever people take money and power by force, they're always going to take it for themselves because man is sinful. So you can't trust in man to produce a just system, but you have to trust in God, and that's what really the Old Testament prophets are all about. You give up idolatry, you worship God, you love your neighbor as yourself, and that's going to bring about justice in society. But these secular, humanistic, atheistic systems of trying to bring about a false standard of justice in society are only creating envy and only create class warfare and strife and only further impoverish the countries that go down that route. So very important to understand what the prophets are talking about when they talk about justice and don't let people mislead you on that. Well, that is very brief and I encourage you to read the article that Got Questions put out on that question. Excellent article. So Here we are in the themes. We're talking about the sin of Israel and Judah, first idolatry, and then injustice in the way that they're treating one another. Back when I was in seminary, you could still use that word social injustice, but it's been so tainted by cultural Marxism that now you can't even use that word anymore. 
they've stolen it and, and twisted it and distorted it. So we have to talk about biblical justice or something along those lines rather than social justice or interpersonal justice. I don't know. But social justice has really become a tainted word, sadly. And then notice that the idolatry is the main sin, as you see in the outline there, but that the sins against human beings flow out of the sin against God. That's why the sin of the golden calf is such, well, it's not why, but it's one reason why, or it's part of the reason why. The sin of the golden calf is so heinous is because when your heart no longer worships the true God, then that distorts you completely morally and spiritually so that then it leads to all these other sins that are manifest in society. And you see that in Romans 1. Romans 1 is a very important text to read and understand about how sin works in society and culture how the heart of it is idolatry, and then it leads into our sins against one another. That's why the greatest command is to love God, and the second command is to love your neighbor. This loving of the neighbor flows out of the love of God. When your heart is restored to God, then your relationships on the human level are also restored. So, sin of Israel and Judah, and then, of course, judgment on Israel and Judah, key theme in Hosea, Joel, Amos, Habakkuk and Zephaniah, and then the restoration, just like the major prophets focused on the restoration, so you have that emphasis also among the minor prophets, the book of the twelve. Notice Zechariah, the end of Zechariah really focuses on this future restoration of Israel, and then of course the theme of the judgment on the nations, and there some of these middle books really focus on the judgment on the nations, and that theme carries over into the outline and the structure. So let's take a look at the outline and the structure. As I mentioned, they're not in strict chronological order, although they do generally follow a chronological order. The last book's coming last, Malachi being there at the end. This then comes to the question of, are we supposed to view them as one book, or are we supposed to view them as 12 individual books? And the answer is, yes. They are 12 individual books, but they are also probably rightly considered as a unity. They are 12 books that come together to form one more major prophet. So don't think of the minor prophets as minor prophets. Think of them as parts of one more major prophet. And basically, you see there on the outline that it's going to follow the same pattern, the same ideas that we had in Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, starting with judgment, focusing then on the day of the Lord, and then having a message for the nations, and then returning to judgment and restoration there at the end of the book, with a special emphasis on the day of the Lord. Now, I put that ABCBC pattern in there. Oh, wait, that was wrong. Uh, notice a typo. It shouldn't say ABCBC. It should say ABCBA. Because what we have here is most likely, if it's not too contrived, and our understanding of it is correct, an inverted parallel. So it starts with that theme of judgment and restoration and ends with judgment and restoration. So A goes with A. And then B, the day of the Lord, then focused again in the the last books there on the day of the Lord in Zephaniah and Haggai. And then in the middle, the focus on the nations with Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, and Habakkuk focusing on Nineveh and Assyria and then also getting into Babylon as also Isaiah does. Isaiah focuses on Assyria in a lot of the first part of his book, but then later on he moves from Assyria to Babylon. And so that's the way that the Book of the Twelve also handles the nations, focusing on God's judgment through the Assyrians and his control of the Assyrians, 
but then showing how Babylon was going to come next and be the final tool of judgment there on Old Testament Israel. So I think that is accurate, that that's the right way to look at the 12, is to see them as a, a flowing parallel, focusing on judgment and restoration, and including this element of judgment on the nations, so that the book of Jonah is not a standalone book. Uh, out of all the ones in there, it might seem like the one that would stand alone the most, but it's actually in the context of God's dealing with the nations and God's control, even over the most powerful nations, like Nineveh as the capital of Assyria. So then the purpose of the book is Israel's restoration coming after the day of the Lord and that Yahweh's day of judgment is the day of the Lord. So the day of the Lord is coming, Yahweh's day of judgment, and this restoration after it. And I included that question there with the purpose. Does this include salvation, vindication? And as we talked about that, the answer was yes. Its major emphasis is condemnation on the wicked, but a minor element but still a key element of the day of the Lord is the salvation of the righteous. And I think when you look through everything that it says in the prophets about the day, the day of the Lord, and you compare that with the New Testament, and then you find out, yes, that this is a large inclusive term for this whole future day of God dealing with the nations and saving his people. All right, so we covered everything we set out to cover this morning, the themes, the outline, the structure, the purpose, we already talked about the difficulties. Do we view it as a single book? Yes. When is the day of the Lord? It's still future and includes everything that's in the book of Revelation. And number three, when the prophets speak about the social injustice in Israel, is that supporting the modern social justice movement? And the answer is no. Those are different things. 